This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Kufaru International, now out of Wyoming, made in America. Arguably the best frame on the market, in my opinion. Definitely an array of bags to run on the duplex light frame. Check out the Bedlam, that's what I used in 2023. Check out the Hoodlum, that's what I ran in 22. They have day packs, they have expedition packs, they have hip quivers, chest bino rigs, the whole gamut, and it's made in America. My buddy Aaron Snyder runs the deal. It's a great team, great customer service. Head over to Kufara International and do your shopping. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks for doing this, man. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on today. No, thank you. Yeah, it's an honor to be here with you. I love talking to bow hunters, uh, probably a little biased, but we have so much in common just because we bow hunt, you know, everything else is whatever we can find common ground. Um, I really didn't get a chance to listen to your three and a half hour <laughs> podcast. I tried, I got through 30 minutes and then I got interrupted and I'm just, I haven't picked up where I left off, but it was going great. How's the feedback been? You were on the 500th episode of Kufaru cast. Yeah, that was really cool to be there with Aaron. I know Aaron from way back, but it was, uh, yeah, it was an honor to be there for the 500th. And he didn't know if it was going to be two different sessions. He decided to put it all in one because we talked for like four and a half hours. <laughs> and then when I saw it as one, three hours and whatever, 40 minutes, whatever. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I You know, I loved comparing kind of some of our data, his much more driven by all of his hunts and all the animals that he shoots and me more in my testing the lab, though I hunt as well, but not as much as he hunts and kills as many animals as he does. But our results were just strikingly similar. So that was really a, a cool, true collab, you know, kind of a thing to talk like that. 
Okay, well, we're going to get into that. But first, we got to get to know you. I want to get to know you. Give me a little bit of your background, not only like what your day to day look like most like I, I want to start there, but then take us back into how you got a bow in your hand day to day. So I'm a pastor. That's my full time gig. I've been doing that since, gosh, since I graduated from I got a degree in engineering, civil engineering, and then I went to theology school. And so that was in 85, I graduated uh, or went to theology school. So since then, been in the full-time ministry. And that's what I do uh, here in Texas and Dallas. That's like pretty much every day, you know, I get a day off, but um, that's my day-to-day. But it, it has a bit of flexibility, right, in getting with people and appointments and stuff like that. And so that gives me a little bit of free time here and there whenever I can to do the broadhead testing and hunting and other gear testing that I enjoy so much. So that that's what day and I'm married, I, you know, live here with my wife and married forever over uh, about almost 40 years. And so, yeah, family man and no kids at home. They they're off, you know, doing their thing. They're both married. Both their girls are married. They're in Denver. We used to live in Denver. So day to day is ministry. And then as much as I can, archery and bow hunting. <laughs> I love it, man. So when I think of Dallas and a pastor, I kind of think of like mega church at first, but maybe not like what, what's the size of your congregation? Yeah, our church is about a, a little over 1100 adult members. And so, you know, I, and we meet, meet in four different locations every once in a while. We're all together, um, but we're in four different places, different worship centers throughout the, the area geographically. Our primary area is the east, like the whole east side, like the Dallas side, uh, as opposed to the Fort Worth side. And so we have people from way up north, way down south, way east. And uh, yeah, I love it. Great group. We moved here from Des Moines, Iowa. And that was like four and a half years. And I was, we were looking for like a, a more decaffeinated life. And that's why we moved there. A small church. We've lived in Manila, Bangkok, San Francisco, Denver, and all of those, most of those were very big churches, thousands like in, in Manila and uh, thousands and thousands. And Denver was really big. So we were ready for a bit of a break and moved to Des Moines. Still was a pastor there, but a much smaller church. And then we were kind of ready to get back into it. And uh, maybe our final decade of full-time ministry. My wife and I both work full-time for the church. We wanted to come where we could have a good platform to be able to help a lot of people. And Dallas and the the role here really fit that bill. Okay. So are you guys um, like a non-denom or what are you exactly? Yeah, it's non-denominational church. It's called the DFW Church. So just, you know, covers the whole DFW area and just DFW Church. And that's our website, dfwchurch.net and and so and org. And so you can, you know, it's just non-denominational. We just try to go by the Bible and love people and love God and have a great time doing it. It's super diverse. My gosh. I mean, it's the most racially age-wise, geographically, socioeconomically diverse church I've ever been a part of. And I love that. I just, I love people from all types. You're talking about the common ground, just with the common ground of loving God and really wanting to follow him. So, I mean, that is my passion. I just, I love helping people and love uh, doing what's right. I grew up an atheist. And so I had a had a real kind of conversion, so to speak, in when I was in uh, undergraduate school at LSU, Louisiana. 
then I fell in love with a Cajun girl that I met there at church. And, and so, uh, you know, that's been the story ever since. So growing up as an atheist, like, uh, was that like any influence from your folks or was that something that you, that was your deal, your journey? You just, I mean, being an atheist is a belief, is a religion in a way. So how did that come to be? Yeah, that's a good question, Dan. I, my parents, okay, I grew up in a, I grew up Catholic in a, you know, big denomination. I'm the youngest of six kids. And so by the time I was about nine or 10, I think my parents were pretty kind of burnt out on the let's all squeeze into the Volkswagen bug, which we did. I mean, every Sunday, all eight of us in this little beetle, this little Volkswagen, we had, me and my sister were in the little back cubby in the back and, and we'd pack into church. <laughs> I think my parents hit this point, they're like, you know what, we're going to stop going to church. And so I was at this, you know, young formative age that I didn't have any religion. I was agnostic for many years and then just became agnosticism became atheism. And I used to publicly debate against the scriptures, the authenticity of the scriptures and belief in God. I did that when I was in college, but I always wondered, like I'd go back to my dorm at night, I'd go running and along the levee of the Mississippi river there and look at the sunset. And I'd wonder like, but, but is there, you know, is there an absolute truth by which all men should live? And so I was studying civil engineering, but I, I started taking some courses in comparative religions and philosophies. And then met a pretty girl and she opened my heart. Okay, I've married a prettier one, but I met this other pretty girl and she opened my heart and got me to kind of look at God in a different way and open the Bible with me. And man, it was just the right opening at the right time to totally change the course of my life. And I'm very grateful for that. It's insane to me to hear that. We'll talk about archery and broadheads, those that are getting maybe squirrely right now, but this is my podcast. I like, I think faith is a huge, like I say on my opener, the number one priority is faith, then family, then fitness, then, you know, it gets a little blurry after that. Sometimes it is elk hunting and um, career really gets pushed down. I am guilty of like quitting jobs so that I can hunt more, not worrying about money worrying about time and i think people obviously people dig that message a little bit because they can relate because we're not just meant to punch a clock and pay bills and die uh and you're going to pay a lot of taxes along the way no matter what my point of all that is is we can talk about faith a little bit i can picture your heart probably being a little bit harder uh if you're sitting there in college arguing is god real or not basically and i think that's super interesting if you look now that you are trying to bring people to the Lord. So for you in your ministry, current day, what is your role exactly? Are you a behind the scenes guy? Are you like a small group leader? Uh, what does your ministry look like? Are you just serving people? What do you, what does that look like? So, you know, I, I pastor this, this group and I, I preach on Sundays, midweeks, train small group leaders do every kind of counseling imaginable and train other staff. We have a, a, a decent sized ministry staff. And so I train other staff members and network with others of our leaders around the country and just try to meet as many needs as we can and spread the gospel. Even, you know, overseas, I speak Thai fluently because we lived in Thailand. Like I, I said, I can speak Thai fluently. And, and so I loved being over there where everyone is like a, a Buddhist, basically. 
and to help people, though I respect them and I respect their beliefs, but to help them understand Christianity and have, I can't force them. I don't want to force them, but understand what it is so they can make a choice. I love that. Uh, coming from an atheist background myself, I love the mission work and in Cambodia and Laos. And we started church in Laos and Burma, and then in the Philippines and Southern Philippines and Mindanao in the Muslim area. So we we did that all for years and we'll still network with those people and periodically travel over there and so forth. So I love what I do like that, you know, but I'll tell you the challenge, one of the biggest challenges of moving over to Thailand is their, uh, they believe in reincarnation as Buddhists. And so they don't kill any animals. And I was like, in the beginning, I'm telling like hunting stories. I was using a translator and I'm like, <laughs> and then I went hunt with my dad. You know? And he's like, he, after a while, he's like, hey, he's real sensitive. Hey, hey, John, can I tell you like, when you tell hunting stories, people here consider that a sin. I'm like, oh my gosh, thanks for telling me. You should have told me earlier. Ooh. I couldn't, I couldn't hunt for years when I was over there. And though you can fish, I, I don't understand how they let that happen, but I did get some good sailfish, but I didn't hunt for all these years. Then I came back to the States after six years of being in Asia and made up for lost time. <laughs> I'm diving back in. I, I can't stay away that long. And when you know, opportunities come up, hey, you want to move back to Thailand? I'm like, nah, nah, I'm good. I, I can't do it again. I could do it when I was younger, but man, I love to hunt too much now. I feel that. Uh, well, when you're in college, you're taking these like basically classes on different religions and comparing them. There's That made me think of this one episode of Joe Rogan. I don't listen to every episode of Joe Rogan, but I love Joe Rogan. I do. I find him to be sincere and genuine, but he's definitely like, you know, he's not really like a, I wouldn't say he's outspoken agnostic or atheist. I don't really know what he is, but I want him to know Jesus straight up. I'll just say it. I want, you know, I want him to. I guess I could say, like, I work with Aaron Snyder, like, um, behind the scenes. Like, I actually work with Kufaru, so I've known him forever. But anyways, there's a podcast that Joe had. I'm going to look it up real quick while I... It's episode 2008, and it's Stephen C. Meyer. Have you ever... Did you ever heard of that author? Okay, got to go listen to it. And it's basically a guy who argues with science that there's intelligent design. There's a creator and I feel like his argument is compelling and it was interesting that one, he's on, he's sitting across from Joe Rogan who definitely believe, probably believes in evolution to a degree. And, and obviously there's some evolution out there. Like we're not going to argue that right now, but it was fascinating. I got to give Joe Rogan credit for like, he's so open-minded. I, I think that's why people love him. I know that's why I do, but I thought this guy hit it out of the park. So if y'all get a chance, 2008 is the episode number. Uh, Steven C. Meyer, such a good listen, very compelling argument. And, um, this is John. This is why I love podcasting. Is I never know what the hell I'm going to talk about with guests. I think I know, and then we're going here listening to you in Cambodia and Laos, and not being able to hunt for six years. Man, good for you. <laughs> That's cool. I am going to look that up. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, you know, Aristotle defines science as the search for truth, and I think in every way, you know, we're searching for truth at every level. And I think it's good to keep an open mind and keep kind of exploring what is out there. When we stop asking, 
something dies inside of us and we stop wondering something sleeps. And so I think it's good to awaken those senses and kind of go, hmm, you know, I wonder, let me investigate and not just trust the thoughts and processes of yesteryear, but really be open at different times in our life to see what really is. Oh man, that's great. All right. So you live in Texas, uh, one of my favorite states because as in the last three or four years, I've found myself with a year round non-resident hunting license in Texas, just to have the flexibility to come down there, meet more people and hunt really cool species. Uh, so I have hunted Texas for Audet a couple times, low fence with a really good friend, John. I'm not going to, him and I have had a great experience, but no arrows fired. And it's low fence. It's not the best terrain for Odd Dad, but there's enough there to keep you hungry and motivated. And I just haven't put, I'm going to probably go back this year again. We're going to get it done. I've hunted pigs over feeders, spot and stock uh, with thermals at night. I've hunted axis a little bit, nothing great. And I've even hunted whitetail, even high fence whitetail. I, I like Texas and I brought up Texas in um, the last podcast and I want to get your, just your two cents on this. The last podcast I did was with um, a guy named Preston. He's goes by uh, mountain physio. And then my videographer, I hired full-time Jeff Dodds. And at the end of the podcast, like we didn't really want to talk about this monkey or elephant. I should say elephant in the room, but we did. Um, my buddy Preston is like a physical therapist and he helps people with their shoulders, specifically bow hunters. So the guy's gold, right? Like if you have shoulder problems, you're on the sidelines. Bow hunters do not want to be on the sidelines. So I see a lot of value in what he brings to the table, but we were discussing the fact that he had eight direct messages, eight different people telling him about how they shot a bull elk and couldn't find it. And they had this broadhead, this setup, this shot angle, this blood trail. And then I was telling him I went hunting in Utah and I was at a, a ranch and the orientation guy told us that eight bow hunters shot and wounded elk the week previous and that they didn't find eight elk and that they had a wound policy. If you wound, you're done. That's your animal. And then I've gotten a ton of messages this year from people asking me, what did I do wrong? Here's pictures of the blood trail. Here's what I, you know, so we talked about the elephant in the room on that pot. I'm going to bring it back up, man. Wounding animals is part of the deal and no one wants to talk about it. Right. And so I guess I wanted to get to your knowledge and expertise and arm my listeners, our audience on best practices when it comes to selecting a broadhead, what characteristics when it comes to materials, sharpness, aeroflight, and your testing protocol that you've come up with on YouTube. Uh, and then your lean on your however many decades of bow hunting you have under your belt, buddy. So let's get into, because I... I don't want people to have wound stories, man. I want people to have success stories and I want to compare notes and shine a light on best practices. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So have you yourself ever wounded an elk and not been able to recover it? Yeah. One time I did. Give us the circumstances if you, if you care to. Yeah. I, uh, I was calling it in. I was blind calling and started hearing a, a you know a, a mew that I thought it was going to be a cow but it ends up being this this bull kind of a scrub but you know it was decent decent enough to want to shoot and uh I didn't have a or did I no I didn't I wasn't using a decoy I was just calling but it came in and it was like 55 yards 
and it was walking pretty, you know, it, it had a pace to it and it's kind of looking and it's starting to turn broadside. It was broadside up and I had to turn a bit to my right. And I tried to, uh, to call back to get it to stop. It slowed down. I thought I let it enough. It was a good shot, but I hit it a little bit forward and, but it was, it was a solid bam. And it reeled around. It only ran about 40 yards and it stood there and it it ran, it was about 80 yards away, just stand there. And I looked through my binos and it's just bleeding. And I, and I can see that, that, well, this side was this side. Yeah, this side, I could see, you know, the blood, it looked a little forward and I was sweating it, but man, it's just standing there bleeding. And so I was like, okay, what do I do? It was getting darker and darker. I, I couldn't get a shot because there's too much overhang. You know, I would have taken an 80 yard shot as a follow-up, but there's too much overhanging stuff. And I thought, do I creep up? try another shot. And so I'm, I'm texting one of my buddies asking him, what would you do? You know, cause I'm so excited. And, and then I, he said back out. So, okay. So I just back out next morning, climb that mountain. I go back up there, totally confident. I'm going to go claim my elk. And here's this humongous blood, you know, just puddle and then a very sparse trail leading off. And I never got it. And it was just, it was crushing because I, you know, I just think I hit it a little bit forward and I, I got, you know, maybe about 14 inches of penetration, the arrow broke off. And I hate to think of that animal, I, you know, being out there hurt like that. It's, it's a sinking feeling. It's selfishly a sinking feeling. It's, it's, you know, as you, you care about the animal, it's a sinking feeling. It just sucks all the way around, right? It's like the worst of the worst. So yeah, I've been there and it's not just with elk. I've done it with other species too. I, I wish I could be one of those guys that say, nope, you know, never, never done it. I have. And, and, and man, it, it's, it's very frustrating when it happens. I don't think that person exists uh, who's never. And if they do, they just haven't been bow hunting long enough. Cause, and, and it's part of the deal and it does, it's not fun to talk about, right? Like I have one that just haunts me to this day where it was a bull that I had been kind of studying for three days, which is not like me. I'm pretty aggressive elk hunter. I'm just aggressive in life, right? Like I'm just a, a go getter. And I, I chilled out and watched him in the mornings. He had nine cows and calves. He was a big old bull. And I'd watch him in the evenings and I did that for two days straight. In fact, I even got my dad to help me like space out and make sure that we could just study and observe. And this was mid September and we kind of had him, I wouldn't say pattern, but we knew this patch of timber. He liked to go in and come out two days in a row. And then that morning they went in the same patch of timber and I was like, okay, I, I'm going to make my move tonight. I'm going to do it. So I hiked up there about 630 at night. I waited till I knew that the wind was 1000% predictable. Thermals had fully committed. And I snuck up to the edge of that timber and it was about seven. And that bull had been coming through like between seven and seven Oh five. And, uh, it's really hard to pattern elk middle of September when they're rutting, right? They're very unpredictable, but I had a pretty good inclining that this was, this was going to go down. And it was about seven 15. And I was like, man, did I get winded? I haven't heard a bugle. And then 
I hear him rip a bugle and it's just kind of around the corner. And I knew like, okay, he's coming out on the backside. I sprinted over there, like literally I get over there. I come over the crest and drop down. I'm on the edge of a timber and I'm at the very top of a really high mountain. We're close to 10,000 feet and out come his cows, all nine of them. And they don't see me. And you know, as an elk hunter, if you get all the cows to go by you and they don't see you and you got the wind, something's going to die. And so I got to the edge of the timber and I ranged where all the cows came out. It was 40 and I'm next to a big Christmas tree and I hear him bugle. And then he comes right out of the timber, takes a few steps. I'm ranging him just to make sure and it's, I'm getting 42, 41. And then I put my rangefinder in the pouch of my marsupial and he sees something about that and stops and stares at me. And I'm not at full draw. He stares at me for a about two minutes straight and I I'm like my leg is doing a sewing machine it's like I'm I'm have that much adrenaline finally he just lifts his head up and bugles through me and it was like okay he doesn't know I'm a thing and so he after he bugles he turns his head and takes a step and I pull back and now obviously he catches that movement but he's broadside now man and he's 40 and I have a 40 yard pin and it's buried behind the shoulder and I'm just pulling, 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 and I get a clean surprise release. And I see that arrow heading right towards him. Fortunately, I had like, at the time, I think it had like a GoPro or something on my head. But I saw the arrow and I heard the sound and he took off running. And he goes up to the top of the hill. And just like you said, he's probably 90 yards-ish, but I have stuff in the way. So I just throw my glass up and I can see blood coming down mid-body, good height, not high, not low. And he is, by the way, he is like just got out of a wallow bath. Like from head to tip, he he is covered in mud, caked in mud. I could barely recognize, but I could see blood amongst the mud. And it was in a perfect spot. And then he ran away. And then it felt like the light switch got turned off and it was just dark instantly. So I must have shot him with like maybe 10 minutes of legal shooting light left. So while I'm going over to look for my arrow, I'm losing light and I can't see my arrow and I just backed out like you did. And it's that walk of all the way down to your base camp that takes forever and you get there. And my dad was at base camp and I had a laptop and I'm like, let's roll the footage. And we watched the footage and we're like breaking it down frame by frame and we get the arrow flight and it Man, the, the shot looked like it couldn't have been any more perfect. And my dad, you know, he's been hunting forever. He's like, ah, I'll grab the horses. We'll go get that bull tomorrow, you know. So we grab the horses in the morning, ready to pack an elk out. And we go all the way up there. We found my arrow. It wasn't like where you would think it, John. Like you'd think it'd be right behind him. It was about 10 yards after the shot. So it must have got hung up on the backside and then flipped out when he ran. But the arrow looked amazing. Red bubbles, a little bit of dark though, like probably got liver lung, but definitely bubbles. And then not a single drop of blood ever again. And so we're like hands and knees for hours, just following his tracks. And unfortunately it was really open terrain, like sage, which is very difficult to read a track, let alone find blood on the ground. But we never found any blood past the shot. And we never found that bull. I gritted for three days. I accepted that I wasn't going to get the meat, but I'm like, I'm going to put my tag on this bull. And I never found him. And I shot him with a fixed broadhead that I had killed many elk with, a Grim Reaper Micro Hades 3-Blade. That's when I was like, you know what? Nobody is immune 
to losing an elk. Like, cause I couldn't have think of a better shot than that. I even had the proof on video. So I, I wanted to ask you like materials of a broadhead, sharpness of a broadhead, cause you've created a protocol for testing broadheads that is observable, repeatable, and has controls. So let's pass the mic to you. Would you tell the listeners about your testing protocols? Yeah, I appreciate that story, your vulnerability in telling the story. It's really frustrating when that happens, but I, I'm glad you're telling it. I, people need to know that does happen. I, I wanted to quit when stuff like that has happened because I thought I'm the only one because most people don't want to talk about it, right? Um, yep. But my protocol, what, what I wanted to do is sift through just the, the crap. I mean, you know, marketing-wise, Every package, you know, rock buster, you know, elk slayer, whatever, you know, flies like a field point, tough as nails. The marketing is great. And, and a lot of companies spend a lot of money in marketing because it works. So, you know, you can't trust the package. And then you talk to your buddies, whatever they killed the last animal with is the best head there is. And whatever they didn't kill the animal with, that broadhead sucks. Like, it's that just is the God honest truth, what you just said right there. Uh, man, they're like, they're anecdotal evidence, you know, one person or you and a buddy or a couple people at the bow shop. And not that we shouldn't share, we wanna learn from each other, but I just go, I, I can't really trust that, the bias. And so as an engineer, I wanted to find a way to provide comparative data to see how any broadhead would perform under certain conditions. And I figured the most important things that, that affect lethality of a broadhead are flight, like the forgiveness of flight. And there's a whole lot about that. You know, people think, oh, I can shoot in my backyard. Man, when you're nervous that yet that animal's moving, wind is blowing, you know, thermals are swirling. That's a whole different ball game, right? You know that. And, and so I, I want a head that's very forgiving. So I want to test for flight. And then I want to test for sharpness and not just initial sharpness, because that's where a lot of people get deceived. You know, they go, oh, it can shave hair. Man, that initial sharpness is lost as soon as it hits hide. And then the question is, how well does that edge retain its sharpness? And so edge retention is really what ultimately matters because that's the whole rest of the animal. And a lot of heads are so sharp, but it's like tinfoil. As soon as it hits something, boom, it, you know, the, it chatters and it, it gets so dull. So I want to test for sharpness and edge retention. That's the second thing. And then I want to test for penetration because my goal is to get two holes, the best of my ability. Doesn't always happen, but I'd love to get an exit hole and I want the best penetration I can get. I want to, I want to try to get, at least I stack the odds in my favor of getting an exit hole. And then the fourth area is cut size that, you know, you could have a little tiny head that penetrates right through, but man, that, that hole can plug up with fat or with tissue and man, that animal can go a long way and you never find any blood. And so I want the biggest, and I found the widest cut I can get while still accomplishing the other things I talked about, like the flight and and uh, and the, the edge retention, sharpness and so forth. And then the final characteristic is durability, that I want that head to retain its form. You know, a lot of people like say they'll talk about mechanicals, they go, ah, it's just a one and done head. 
I get it. You know, I'm not saying you have to reuse it, but when right. is the done? When does the done happen? If the done happens as soon as it hits the first rib, well, then you got a problem because it's one and done and that broadhead is not doing what you wanted it to do. So I want it to be durable enough that it holds its 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 form, its its integrity throughout the animal. So those are the five areas that I've created tests for, for the flight, for the, the sharpness, the edge retention, the penetration, the, uh, the overall cut size and the durability. And so then I, you know, I have these regular tests and some of them I'm testing for durability. They're, they're off the wall. Like I shoot ahead two times through 22 gauge steel plate. And then my final Ooh. test, I shoot it into cinder block. And the number of comments, well, we don't hunt cinder block. Well, I've never seen a deer with a, a steel plated jacket on. I go, okay, you know, like I haven't heard that before. I get it, but I want to test the outer limits of what a head can and cannot do. Absolutely. Can hold up to cinder block and one can't. All other things equal, I know which one I'm choosing. So I'm just providing the data and then people can decide whether that data matters to them or not. But every head is rated according to these, these data points and given a cumulative score. And Oh, so you're quantifying score? Yeah, I got a score in zero to a hundred. Oh my God, I gotta hear about that. Yeah, it, it took me a long time. People were saying, can you compile it all into one score? I'm like, I don't think it's possible. So then, right. you know, the engineer in me, I'm like sitting down with all these calculations and and basically came up with something that it's actually pretty good. It's not foolproof, but everything gets a score and is weighted. Like say like the cinder block, that's not that important. That's 3% of the score. How well does it hold up to a shot into cinder block? It's not a pass fail. It's just 3%. And so, you know, it compiles and then you get a rating and you may get a lot of heads that are like in the 70, low 80 range, but they get there in different ways. One may get there because it penetrates extremely well. Another may get there because it's super sharp. Another may get there because it has a big wide cut. So it's not, the, the overall score gives you one thing, but then you got to go in and see how it performed. Like I always say, in the areas that matter to you the most, and you want to choose a broadhead based on your own personal setup, your shot distance and the animal you're pursuing. What I hunt an elk with might be very different than what I hunt a Cape Buffalo with or a yep. bison or a whitetail or a turkey, right? And so I wanna gauge the broadhead to that. So you can go into my testing, you can look at an overall score, you go, yeah, but I'm looking for a head with a massive cut because I'm hunting a little animal like a turkey. Oh, here's the one that has a really big cut. And so it, it's, it can be used in any way, shape or form to find objective data about that broadhead. Today's podcast is brought to you by MagView. I think this is the best digiscoping solution on the market. Made in America, lifetime warranty. No silly phone case for your phone. It's a little magnet strip that goes on the back of your phone or your phone case. And it comes with an adapter for any of your glass binoculars or spotters that protects it. It's easy to use and operate and you can trust that your lifetime warranty, it'll be a lifetime investment. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too.
For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So you basically have things that are weighted, and I would guess... What does the uh, penetration test look like and how is that weighted for the total accumulative score? Yeah, good question. So each of those five areas are given 20% of the score with a okay. total of 100 points because they're all, in my mind, pretty even. And yes. they're all like really important factors. For penetration, man, that's a tough one. A, the, a number of people will tell me, you know, why don't you shoot into real animals? Well, I test, I shoot as many animals as I can. Maybe it's like 10 to 20 animals a year. I, I love to test whatever broadhead is performing well in the lab out in the field and see how it performs. But I don't have so many animals. I test probably 50, at least 50 different broadheads a year. I've tested about 300 different Jeez. broadheads. So my channel has like f over 400 videos, but about 300 of them are broadhead tests. And I pump out like in during the season, two a week and the rest of the year, it's one a week, but a lot of broadhead tests. And so I can't shoot that many animals, right? And, and the thing about animals is testing on animals or bone, like people, why don't you shoot into bone? Sometimes I do, you know, get a bunch of elk scapula, I'll buy a bunch or find some bones and stuff like that. But for testing, it's it's not uniform enough. And just as an engineer, right. like if I hit a bone at this angle versus this angle, or the bone is a little denser here, you know, a scapula, you hit the hard part of the soft part, the thick part, the thin part, the stem, you know, the, the flat end, like it makes all the difference in the world. So I see people that test on that and I go, that's a cool test but it's not, it doesn't provide any comparative data because right. one head hit the hard part and then you go, oh, this head broke. Well, yeah, because it hit the hard part. So my, my tests have to be uniform. So with penetration, there's no perfect medium. But what I do is I have two different mediums I use. One is a, a, a like a, a few mediums together. I have a half inch of MDF, uh, the, the uh, fiberboard, and because that's uniform plywood, you might hit a knot or you hit the grains in a weird way or something Fact. like that. So I use a, I use MDF, me and Nancy fireboard. And then I have a, a third of an inch rubber foam mat on either side of it. So the, the, the MDF is sandwiched between kind of like a hide type thing, you know, rubber foam mat. And then that's backed up by clear ballistics, FBI grade gel. And so it's it's visual, so you can see how it penetrates. Gel has its limits, right? I mean, a lot. If I just use gel, pretty much every head's going to penetrate about the same because it sticks to the, the arrow shaft. But when I add these other mediums in front of it, it's mm -hmm. it's not the same. And so that gives quite a disparity. And so I do that, and I that's one test. How far does it penetrate in that medium? And I, you know, of course, I video it. And the gel really helps you to see the arrow. And so for then, then my other penetration test is just in layered cardboard. I buy these these boxes that I never open. You know, just the flat boxes from Amazon. They're very uniform. As a matter of fact, I just got another uh, what eighty. I buy eighty at a time, and then I have these big like uh, F clamps, and I clamp them together in a consistent way. And then yep. just shoot it into it. 
And then I can peel the layers back. I undo the clamps and count how many layers did it penetrate through. And so okay. that's another way like gel, you know, it's not like tissue gel, gel sticks to it, tissue peels away ever. You know, I can't, I can't replicate an animal exactly, but those two different tests really helped me kind of get a gauge on how well this head is going to penetrate. I love that. Okay. One other test question. And I, I didn't have time to do a ton of homework. I've certainly seen some of your videos in my day. One of them is your arrow flight test, your forgiveness, whatever you call it. Um, what distances are you shooting? Because this is where it could get gray, John. Like, do you have the right, is your bow tuned or are you shooting it out of tune? Maybe you're doing that on purpose, which I actually kind of like for fixed broadheads, especially like purposely shooting out of tune. One of my friends does that. Um, actually, you probably know Bill uh, from Iron Will. Yeah, I know. Bill I would assume, very, yeah. He's a mechanical engineer. He will do a lot of testing with out, like bows that are out of tune to, to test flight, which I think is, he's testing veins as well now. But, um, and then distances, arrow spine, are you using a hooter shooter? I guess, tell us about your protocol for the arrow flight, because I think flight forgiveness is something that maybe should even have, if there was a way to test it proper, should may should potentially even have more of a weight than 20%. You know what I mean? It's so important to have that perfect arrow flight. So what are you doing on that? Yeah, it's a really good question, Dan. And I, you know, I'm always trying to evolve it. So what I originally started doing is I would shoot a balloon at 80 yards and I do no broadhead tuning. I just screw it on shoot it. And my yeah. bow is well-tuned. My form is decent. I use helical veins and I've got nice FOC and very straight arrows. So there's a lot going for me. Um, but I was doing that. Then like, then I, I shifted to 70. It, it's hard to find a place in the right conditions to do conditions. 80 yards. Like, okay, there's no wind today. Yeah, but I got to work. Like, <laughs> It's, you know, and I got to drive over to the range. Like it's, it's hard to do that. And so then I moved it to 70. Then I went down to 40 and, you know, viewers give me their feedback and they're like, I never shoot at 70. I never shoot at 80. And it seems like you pop every balloon out there. I'm like, well, and, and, and so then I go to 40 and was doing like grouping at 40. Then where I live now, I can, in my backyard, I can shoot out to 30. So I go, okay, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to shoot a field point at 30 and then chase it with a broadhead. And there you go. I, I, do, I just show that, but I do it many times. And I really do get a feel of just how forgiving is this thing. I found, honestly, most fixed blade heads, I can just screw them on and they shoot pretty darn well. Like that's just, if, if your bow is well-tuned, your form is good, your arrows are well-constructed, that's the case. But that's not most people. And then you add in wind and nerves and stuff like that. It's kind of not anybody, but, but that's how I do it. And so I, what I call it is, is I don't have a system where it's like, okay, they're one inch apart that gets this score, but rather right. I do it just based on flight forgiveness, like the, the exposed blade size, how it felt when I shot it, just shooting hundreds of heads. I give it a score based on zero to 20. And the maximum score I give a fixed blade is 16. Though sometimes it'll get a bonus. And, but the maximum I'll give a, a mechanical is 20 because 
that just that that exposed area, it it really does make a difference. It it, it creates yeah. a different drafting effect. And and so, you know, I'll that's how I do it. Now I've thought about getting a Hooter sewer, I priced them. Um, but then, you know, there's problems with that. You got to keep it set up. There are such a bear to set up that cost thousands of dollars. There's knockoffs that are less expensive. And but I don't have an indoor place that I can just leave it and shoot far enough to make it worthwhile. And I can't set it up each and every time that I do it. So then I thought about in the new year, one of my considerations is to add in a crossbow shot. I don't have a crossbow even just to see okay, 400 plus feet per second. What happens with this broadhead? And so, you know, and then it pulls in the crossbow audience too, but, but I've thought about just adding that in to what I do presently with, with my flight forgiveness test. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well for me. I, I think I can gauge pretty well how a head's going to fly. The problem, you know, I like, I like what you were saying about Bill shooting an untuned bow. What I found with an untuned bow though is different heads, like you'll have one head that flies fantastic out of an untuned bow. You put another one in there and you hit like six inches to the right. You're like, what the heck? And so the lack of the untunedness is not consistent with every broadhead. And so that it's kind of, that's kind of a problem too. So I, a lot of it is subjective and feel from me shooting it but then I do video how the head flies with a field point just to show the effect. I think it's definitely a guy who's done that many tests. It's okay to have some subjectivity in your test. Obviously that being one, I've messed with Hooter shooters. They are extremely the opposite of user-friendly, I would say. And especially even like it's a perfect machine, but it's still hard to set it up perfect and aim it and all that. And after the shot, it does tend to try to, the whole unit tries to move. They are thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, we have one over at Spokane Valley Archery. We've we've tried to do some stuff with it. It's, it's challenging. Um, have you looked at this test and um i know i'm gonna butcher this a little bit so if you know more interrupt bill from iron will has this machine that measures foot pounds and he gets the arrow and he has he pushes the arrow into stuff let's say a piece of leather and a pig shoulder or a, an elk scap and he can measure the foot poundage that it takes to go through that for example obviously um, it's his test. So he's going to, anytime you test your own stuff, it's not third party. You always are going to have some people raise an eyebrow, whatever. I saw his test. I know Bill, he's a straight shooter. Obviously his iron wheel broadheads crush the competition on that penetration test. Like it takes the least amount of foot pounds for an iron wheel to go through that nasty stuff. And then I'll put it on the other end of the spectrum where you put a mechanical on there. And most times the mechanical itself fails before it even gets to penetrate. And the foot pounds are in the three and four hundreds, whereas his was like 80 foot pounds. And I know that like my other broadhead, I like that Grim Reaper Micro Hades is like around 120 and Slick Tricks around 130. And I'm, I could be off, but you get the gist. Have you thought, have you seen that testing protocol that he has? Okay. What's your thoughts on that? Okay, I you know I love what Bill does, and I love the the instruments that he has access to. Being a a physics teacher at CU, an adjunct teacher there, and 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 he's such a has such a great mind. My I I do have an opinion about that. Like yes. first of all, I think people sometimes people look at all that matters is penetration. I like iron wheels. I've used iron wheels. I like Bill. I've taken animals with them, but. Man, if I put a little hole and it zips right through, that 
that's great penetration. I, I read something, somebody said, no animal was ever lost because the broadhead penetrated too well. I go, yes and no. I mean, if it's too small of a cut, then then man, you're you're wasting your penetration power. I want maximum cut while it penetrates well. So on the one, so just to say that as a preface, I I don't think penetration is the end all to broadhead, but a lot of people think that. But then the other thing is, here's my opinion on it: is what happens at slow speed is very different than what happens at high speed. And my beef with those kind of tests is the speed at which it happens. Like for example, physically, if, and, and man, he's a physics guy, he knows more about this than me, but if I jump into a pool one foot off the side, off the edge, it feels nice. If I go a thousand feet high and jump into that pool, it feels like concrete. Like what happens at slow speed is very different than what happens at high speed. And I've seen these tests where they'll take a, a, a you know, a, like a, a mechanical, and man, it took, you know, 300 pounds, you know, to push it through. I go, yeah, but when I shoot it into an animal, it zips right through. Or when I do my penetration tests, some of these outpenetrate some of those that do really well in a push test like that. And so I think that's great for what it is. But at 300 feet per second, 280, I think it's literally a totally different animal. There's a lot more pushing than cutting that's going on. People like to think it's just cutting, but at that speed, like you, you take a bullet and it just, you know, zips like a musket ball or something, you know, zips right through something. And I think the same effect happens with broadheads and I think a deceptive thing about some of those tests is if you take a, an Ashby three to one ratio, you know, length to width, three to one, his whole thing is that's the optimal, you know, design for the best penetration due to what he calls mechanical advantage. Personally, while I respect so much of his research, I think that's a misapplication of that principle of mechanical advantage. That's great for a lever or designing a wheelchair ramp where you're prying things apart, a wedge splitting wood, but a broadhead is cutting through something. It's not prying it apart. So anyway, the problem with a three to one is in most of the, in the mediums I test at least, that the longer a broadhead is, you do that push test, it penetrates really well. At high speed, you're creating a lot of surface friction by that long broadhead. So that length, helps and looks really good in a slow push test at 300 feet per second, you've just introduced a lot of a surface friction that impedes penetration. So I'll take an Ashby head and shoot it into layered cardboard and it won't penetrate nearly as well as a short stout little head that defies the principles of their application of mechanical advantage. So that that's my my only concern is when we do stuff at slow speed, it's not necessarily a real world application. And the conclusions we make, we have to be careful with. I hate to share this idea, but I'm going to. I'm pretty transparent, but I wanted to. I almost want to do like a a symposium or like a get together, and I want to do it at Colorado University uh, because they have a phantom camera. And they have, Bill's got an army of little nerds running around. And I want you to be there. I want Snyder to be there. I want my buddy, Josh Jones, to be there. And I might even invite the engineer of the Schwacker Broadhead. Uh, I had him on a episode of YouTube. 
and I just want us all to be there and create a test and run as many broadheads through it. And I want to pick your brain on maybe what we could shoot through. The Phantom cameras, you got to have really, you got to do it basically outside. You can't really do them indoors. I want a watermelon to be the, the final thing instead of ballistic gel. Like I want like a watermelon, but I also want hide. I need hide. I'd prefer an elk hide. And if we can't do that, then maybe leather. But I need I need that something that's going to dull those initial sharp tests. Like you're talking like retention, really test the retention of broadhead. And then I want, I don't think plywood is the right idea, but um, possibly some sort of, well, what are you using again on yours? Instead I of plywood, you're MDF. Maybe MDF, maybe and then I'd like an actual pig shoulder or something, something that I can buy from a butcher and then a watermelon, you know? So it's having to go through all these things, get a couple phantoms pointing on it and get a hooter shooter, set it at, let's figure out that most average shot distance. It's probably going to be in the twenties or maybe low thirties that most people are taking, set it up out of and shoot it all out of the same arrow get a batch of arrows that are uniform within a grain same spine same components and get everyone to agree on that and shoot everything we can and look at the data together and measure stuff i would love to do that and put that on youtube i still feel like that needs to be done um phantom cameras to rent are like four or five thousand dollars for seven days and then you actually got to know how to use them and then you need a separate computer that can handle all that um you know all that information and quite honestly it's overwhelming a little bit but i want to do it i've been talking to bill about it so i'm gonna <clears throat> don't be surprised if i reach out to you down the road and be like okay let's do this let's get on a plane let's meet in denver let's go do this and uh, I'm just advertising this because I know Bill will listen to this podcast and he'll know how serious I am. And I'm also going to put Bill on blast that I have been begging him for four years straight to make me a broadhead. And I want to call it the elk-shaped broadhead. And I want it to be his materials, his process. I just want it to be three-blade. I just want it to be three-blade. That's what I've been begging for. So, Bill, I have now blasted you publicly. Make me my broadhead. But anyways, I wanted to talk to you about your elk hunting arrow that you used in 2023. I'm assuming you went elk hunting. Okay. What's my setup? Is that what you're asking? Tell me all the details of the arrow you used to kill elk with. Air, total arrow weight, broadhead. What did you pick? Yeah. Um, like 460 grains is what I was shooting at the time. And um, and that's I used Bishop FOC King arrows. It's a good friend of mine is the one who owns and makes everything from for Bishop. And so we became friends many years ago. He makes incredible stuff, incredibly expensive, but top tier. I mean, it's all the best of the best. He's a very niche audience and, and clientele. But anyway, um, that's the arrow, um, about 20% FOC. They use a, a, a hardened steel insert with a with a footer on it and so that weighs like 120 grains 125 grain broadhead on top of that i used a few different broadheads i was using tooth of the arrow for most of them and um really like the penetration of the tooth of the arrow it's funny you know you got this blocky little two inches of cut you know one inch each way with the original but man the hole it opens up for your arrow shaft to glide through it's incredible how that thing penetrates compared to a typical two blade that you have a slice, but then the arrow shaft has a lot of friction. And if you're going through like lungs, no, no problem. You're 
going through bone or you're going through some dense tissue, then it's more, it impedes penetration. So anyway, that was my, my main setup. And, you know, the arrows for the most, or one of them wasn't a pass through the others just zipped right through. were very effective. All right. And I think you hinted to something there that I, I would like to talk about too, the two blade deal. Um, and even like iron wheels with bleeders, like, man, I've, I do have a lot of confidence in penetration and taking, like, let me give an example. Like if I'm hunting solo and I am vocalizing to elk, which I don't prefer to vocalize to elk, but sometimes you got to, and they come in at you and you're presented with a frontal at 10 yards, or maybe it's 17 yards and it's quartering too hard and you could get the arrow in front of the shoulder or you could try to be Robin Hood and put it just slightly behind the shoulder, but man, you got to stay tight to that shoulder. Or maybe you got a severe quartering away where you're going to go through hay, which is guts and stomach, to pierce through the diaphragm to get into the good stuff. And you're probably going to exit out the neck or in front of the opposite shoulder, whatever. To me, that's where those really sharp, you know, iron wheel type you know with bleeders was is going to shine and so i took to the field with iron wheels i killed both my bulls this year with iron wheels i killed three bulls last year and only one of them i used an iron wheel and it was the first one and i shot him twice first at 25 broadside back of the lungs double double lung he went 15 yards and looked around like what just happened he didn't even know he was shot and then I put another one and I aimed really through the, I mean, he was bleeding out both sides. I knew how, I knew that that was a good shot, but you never know, right? He's standing, keep shooting, put the other one through the shoulder out the neck. And then he stood around for about a minute and then fell over, picked up both arrows, clean pass throughs, hardly any blood on the ground, bro. Like hardly any at all. And for a solo guy, when you're trying to recover an elk, I really like two holes and I really like a lot of blood, John. I like blood on the ground. It's really, you know, I think it helps with the recovery process, if you will. And so I was talking to Iron Mobile and I was like, man, I almost think I'm on a switch to your wides, even for elk. I just want a bigger hole. I just want a bigger hole. And so you said that that tooth of the arrow really opened them up. What was your blood trails like? I imagine they were pretty legit. Yeah, they were. They were. They were. They were really legit. But let me say this about it. I think blood trails like I, I have this video I put out. I don't mean just to plug myself, but it was like a year ago. It's called Broadheads and Blood Trails. Understand okay. the and it's like a 30 minute video. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand there when I, they'll ask me about a, a, a broadhead and they'll be like, what are the blood trails like? And that it's like, the, I understand the question, but it, the question itself reveals there's, there's an, a, a misunderstanding about how it works. So with, and, and, you know, you, you always hear shot placement is what matters. Of course it does, but you can take, like, if you take a, a broadhead, say you take, say you take an iron wheel, what an incredible broadhead. I shot a moose with one I've shot. I mean, I love those broadheads. It's a relatively small cut, like you're saying, but if you put it right in the boiler room, you go, okay, I got a double lung, but whether you clip an artery or just a vein, right. it's going to make all the difference in whether you got a gusher or not. I've heard, I don't know how true this is. I've heard of whether you hit it when the, when the lungs are inflated or deflated can make a difference in the initial burst. Of course, how high you hit in the lungs makes a difference. The angle, is there a deflection within the animal that you're getting a, a, a piece of lung, but shot placement it, 
like again, if you if you hit that artery, I I've shot hogs with little bitty broadheads that I mean are throwing out buckets, and then I've shot them with grave diggers that you know are like so much cut where there's like no blood, and right. and it's not as much a function of the broadhead as it is the anatomy of the animal. And there's so many dynamics when that broadhead hits how they move, how they react, how much they duck, things you can't see, what happens to that arrow inside the animal and what veins it hits or, or arteries or neither, all that affects blood trail. And it's not just the broadhead. So people go, like say I, I'm an exodus. They go, well, an exodus, what, what kind of blood trail do you get? I go, you're gonna get a blood trail of a one and a quarter inch three blade, 1.875, you know, inches of steel putting through an animal. It's up to you to see where it hits and and the shot placement, and that's what's going to affect the blood trail. So I, I think that's a, a real misunderstanding. All that being said, the the bigger the cut is, the more it's stacking the odds in my favor to clip that artery or get that extra vein. And so with a perfect shot and you hit just the right spot, man, you can put it down with anything, a little bitty one inch two blade. But man, in an imperfect world, you hit a little far back, or even if you're, you know, you want to have that extra bit to clip that artery. That's why I like mechanicals. That's why I like, or I love the wide. I love the iron wheel wide for that reason. I'm just giving myself a little bit of edge to clip that extra artery. And I've found that the wider the cut is, that like when a, a little cut, the animal moves, it stays a little cut. But if it's wide, that animal moves, that hide stretches and that hole gets even bigger over time. So I prefer like you could take a two inch cut that's one inch by one inch, a four blade. That's not the same as two inches, two blade, like a two inch, two blade is probably going to turn into a three inch hole, whereas yeah. a two inch four blade is going to stay a little one inch hole like that. So it's just interesting, all those different dynamics, but I like as wide of a cut as I can get while still hitting where I aimed and still giving me a good chance at a pass through to just hope to clip that artery. Like for example, I shot that, that iron wheel, I shot a moose with it. I carried in my quiver two broadheads, which I often do. I, yeah, I was, same here. Okay, we were doing some calling. I had iron wheel single bevel, which I had begged Bill for years to make one love his single bevel head. Finally, he did. It's a great head. So I had that with bleeders in case I'm getting a frontal shot. Then you know I can just punch it in. Great penetration. And then I had a sever 1.5 for a follow up, a windy shot, a really long shot, or a broadside shot. Well, this moose is coming in. I loaded the iron wheel. It's coming straight at me. But then it turned at like 30 plus yards. It's broadside. I had the iron wheel and I mean, I pasted it. It was like perfect shot, <laughs> you know, and it went away. It stood at 70 yards and then I shot it with a sever. I knocked that just for that reason. And man, it, it did an incredible job. The sever did an incredible job. The iron wheel deflected a little bit inside. And so it still caught both lungs, but it did have a little bit of deflection, which can happen like that. And, you know, it, it was, there was some blood from it. I'll just say there was some blood from the sever and just, and not because of the broadhead, but where I hit, it was a gusher. And so mm -hmm. it clipped an artery in the upper leg. And, and, you know, so both broadheads are great, but where they hit can make all the difference. And I prefer a bigger cut 
to give me a better chance at doing that. Mm, well said. Two observations want your commentary. One, you'll see on the internet a lot of guys like, look at this hole I put in this animal. And it could be with whatever broadhead, but I don't think people realize something that you had said. If you had shot, I see it on the whitetails right now on Instagram and people will show pictures of like these three and four inch holes in these animals. And it's like, bro, that's not from your broadhead. Like if you'd shot that animal and it just stood there and then fell over, your hole wouldn't be that big. You created a big enough hole to when it ran away on its death run, it ripped open bigger and bigger. So I think that was important you said that. I think that's awesome. And then this is my last comment, and I want your comment on this. So I completely agree with everything you're saying, but here's the one thing I don't want to compromise in. And this is my, this is where I don't like mechanicals, and I'm pretty public about it, is like, I want two holes, okay? Regardless if I hit a vein or an artery, I want a place for fluid to leave the container. I used to be an EMT and I used to study hemorrhage and bleeding and I want hemorrhage. I want blood loss and I don't, I don't want it to get pulled up inside the body. I want it leaving the container. So I guess I want to lean on you. If I was to pick a mechanical, uh, I have a few that I've tried and I've liked. Is there one that you're willing to say gives me the best odds regardless of shot selection to get out the other side. I don't care if the arrow's sticking out and dangling. I just need the head to go through both sides of the hide. Have you found a couple top ones that you're willing to share about? Yeah. My favorite for that is a Sever 1.5. Just because okay. it's, you know, it's, it's an inch and a half. It's rear deploying. So I know I'm going to get at least one good hole. And personally, yep. I do prefer rear deployment except for turkey, but I, I, I want at least one good hole just in case I don't get a pass through. I know I'm going to get one good hole. If I'm using an over the top deploying mechanical, those can work. I've used a lot of them. There's some really great heads. If I don't get a pass through, I'm getting one little bitty hole and that can be a problem. Good internal damage, but I want blood like you. So okay. with a rear deployment, at least I'm getting one big hole. And then with a 1.5 inch cut, as opposed to a two or 2.3 and a lot of the other heads like that, it's small enough that it's going to maximize penetration, but it's, it's big enough that you go, man, that's an inch and a half cut. And that can stretch and make even bigger. So I like when I am going after something big, like a moose or like an elk or African animals, you know, like if, if it's something big, then I... And I'm using a mechanical for that long distance shot, that flight forgiveness. Like I shot a zebra at 82 yards with a with a sever 1.5. It hit him in the, through the neck. And but you know, as a passer, it was dangling out the other side. But man, a lot of blood. That that's the one that I've found is a good balance of all that, the 1.5. And that's with my setup, my arrow weight, other people, you know, you're pulling 85 pounds like Aaron or something. And, you know, and he's used to sever a lot too and gotten a lot of pass-throughs like that. Yeah. And I think we didn't talk about this, but we can maybe start to finish up our conversation towards materials is I just shot an axis with uh, a sever 175 and I hit a lot of bones, man. I hit the heart. And then I hit a lot of bones, man, on the way out. And I got a pass through. 
and the animal didn't go 30, maybe 30 yards or whatever. But I was really impressed. I was like, is there something to be said, John, about material selection? Because I know that severs titanium. And I just think I have a lot of belief in titanium's got to be one of the better choices versus aluminum or whatever. And it even kind of bums me out. Like some of these mechanicals have aluminum everything, including the ferrule. How come more manufacturers don't? go towards titanium or is it overrated am i do i have it all wrong what do you what's your thoughts on materials it, it's a good point so titanium is not as strong as most steels but it is really lightweight and so there's this there's a sweet spot that you're going for a certain weight and you go okay if i use steel I can't do what I want to do because it's too heavy. I'll be pushing a 200 right. head. Nobody's going to buy it or not as many as 100, 125. And so then they go, okay, aluminum is a lot lighter. You go with 60, 61 aluminum. That's not as strong. 70, 75 aluminum. That's stronger yep. than some seals. Titanium, super lightweight and a lot stronger than aluminum, and but not quite as strong as steel. However, you can make up for that with the right. structural integrity of the design. And so like, if you look at a sever, for example, they're all steel model, they're robusto, 150 grains, all steel. It's very needle, like it's narrow at the tip. You look at the 1.5, it's titanium, but it's it's a little bulkier. It's got more of a chisel tip to it. It's still sharp, but more of a chisel tip. And so in my testing, the, the titanium actually does better. They're both very durable, most durable mechanicals I've ever shot. But the, the titanium does a little bit better, not because it's stronger than the steel, but because of that structural design, it, it has a little bit more bulk to it. So I think, and titanium is more expensive too. So that's one of the challenges in working with it. So if you have a thin titanium, man, it can get, it can just break really easy. If you use, you know, super thick steel, it's too heavy. Use aluminum, you know, that can bend. It, everything is a trade-off. I mean, that's why I always say in broadhead design, everything from flight, penetration, durability, materials, everything is, is a trade-off. Well said. Well, I know you have probably more tests in the books coming up. Do you Are you able to endorse a handful of maybe fixed? Let's run it through my elk filter, John. That way we can kind of like fine tune your opinion. Like you want, you willing to give your top three picks for a fix for elk and maybe your top three mechanicals for an elk since you've done so much testing. Gosh, it, you know, for mechanicals, it's a lot easier, honestly, because okay. it, it's going to be a sever and it, it's, it's not because I'm, I'm sponsored by him or anything like that. It's just, I have, I shot one sever through an elk scapula 11 times a dried scapula. And I mean, hitting the hard part, 11 times. I shot one into cinder block three times and it was still going strong. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I could have kept shooting Dang. it. For a mechanical to do that, it's just freaking rare. And so I, I, I really like, they're not perfect. No head is perfect. Everything has its flaws, but that one is unique in a number of ways. So that, that is the top. I, I think the, the um, evolution Jekyll and Hyde, the, the hybrid that they have is, is really good. You know, another mechanical to consider. And, and there's others. I know a lot of them will get the job done. But, you know, those would be my, my top ones. Um, for a fixed, it's harder because there's just so many choices. Exodus is one of the best all-round heads made. I mean, three-blade Super, you know, 0.040 thick blades, pretty thick blades, extremely sharp, 
I think the most durable fixed replaceable blade head on the market. I mean, I've shot that thing in a steel flat bar and it held together. Like they're just amazing. That's one of my favorite all round heads. Tooth of the arrow, I like it at one piece, four blades, stout little, very concentric. The weight is really based in the center. So it flies lights out. Iron wheel, man, I've taken a number of animals with those and love those for elk. I mean, and then, you know, this year, this trifecta came out and, you know, I, I heard about it and I reached out to the guy. Hey, could you send me some to test? Okay. He lives here kind of close. That's the Rattler grip guy. Yeah. That's a Rattler grip guy. It, yeah. Rob. And a trifecta fixed. I could not believe how well it performed, like crazy performance that would go in my quiver for an elk. No, no question about it. So, I mean, those are some of them, but you mentioned others earlier, the, the micro Hades pro series, yeah. love that head man fix. There's a lot of great choices for, for fix and a lot of them work. Wow. This is great information, man. Um, I would say right now in my quiver are iron wheels, but in the back of my quiver are a couple severs and I'm pretty much I'm not willing to compromise at all. Like, you know, and I think people get really passionate about broadhead discussions and you know that, and I know that. And so nobody's telling you what to do. The thing that I've just developed over time on my channel on YouTube is ABT. And I've gotten, you know, I'm sure I've gotten some hate about it, but it's like always be tinkering. Doesn't mean like change stuff to just change stuff. But what it does mean is to pursue perfection. And I think the better way to say it, John, is to pursue confidence in your setup so that you have everything kind of vetted in your own home lab and that you're heading to the field with the most confidence in the tune of your bow, your arrow selection and your broadhead selection. And then that you put the work in so that you can take advantage of potentially only one shot opportunity. Cause it's bow hunting, man. We're trying to get close. We're trying to get a quick kill and we're trying to do it right. So I think that's awesome. Do you have a, a new video coming out soon? Yeah. I, this time of year I'm putting out two a week. And so they're just, they're all scheduled through November. And then I'll do a summary. Like the last video of every year, I do a summary of the whole year's testing. I put out a oh, spreadsheet that has all the heads and you can go, which one is the biggest cut? Which one flies the best? Which one penetrated the deepest? You know, with an Excel, you can just do that. I do that at the end of every year. So that's coming up soon, but I've done like, I think 60 so far this year. So anyone that goes to Lusk Archery Adventures, you type in, like if you go to YouTube and any broadhead you're interested in, say Iron Will Lusk, just type in search bar, Iron Will Lusk. All my hunts use an iron wheel, all my tests, I have multiple or sever lusk or any broadhead. If you wonder if I've tested it, I probably have, but I may not have. But if you search, you'll see it. And I have playlists of all my hunts and all the different broadhead tests for each year on there as well. So yeah, uh, several more coming up this year, then the summary, and then I'm already lining up. I've got a stack of broadheads to start 2024 with as well. Guys, this is John Lusk. He's doing the Lord's work in the field and off the field. My man, I enjoy just chatting with you. I appreciate what you do. I'm going to put a link in the show description of your YouTube channel. Guys, it's not cheap to buy ballistic gel, to buy Amazon boxes, 
to buy gauge, 20 gauge steel and all buying broadhead, like donate to his PayPal, help fund his non-biased third party research. Uh, he's a good dude and he's a, like, let's support him. I want to put those links in there for you because you took the time out of your day to chat with me about broadheads. Guys, remember this. Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marsupial out of Arizona. My good buddy, Jim, he's running that company. He bootstrapped it. They're awesome. They make a tremendous bino pack. I recommend the enclosed with the magnet. It's quiet. Add your rangefinder pouch on one side and a pocket on the other. They have a variety of options that you can choose from sizing. Their website shows you which size to order based on the glass that you intend to run. It works really well. They make other accessories as well. Check them out. Head over to Marsupial's website. Link in the show notes.